You know, if, if any of you have studied and done any work with uh, philosophers and with philosophical people, maybe there's people around you in your life that has been doing reading around different conundrums that we find ourselves in when we are serving God and being challenged by people who are trying to figure out God, trying to understand Him and understand His ways. There's this terrible uh, philosophical conundrum that says, you know, is, if God is almighty, if God is so powerful, could God create a mountain so big that he would not be able to move it? And people get stuck inside of those kind of conundrums. You know, if God is almighty, of course he can big a, a build a, a, a mountain that big. And, but can I tell you something? God is never stuck in a place where he is not bigger still than his creation. You know, if I could change that little bit of a conundrum slightly as what we're going to talk about today. You know, could God create a problem that is so big that he would not be able to solve it. You know, I wonder that when we are looking at creation, when we are looking at those first few pages of our Bible where God accounts for his design and his creation, we're recognized in that moment that there are onlookers to that experience. You know, there are the angels on both sides of the team that are watching God do his miraculous work of creation. They are there observing him and I often wonder to myself, what would have been their observation as they are sort of like curiously looking over the shoulder of God, watching him as he is, first of all, creating this amazing world that we live in right now. And then the culmination of this amazing journey of creation was this man, this human that God created. And you can imagine the curiosity as those onlookers, angels, both good and bad, are wondering what in the world God is doing. God cloned himself. Could you imagine what that would have been like for those onlookers as they were wondering and wondering and wondering? You know, the plot seriously thickens only a few pages later when we, we see what has happened to this creation, what has happened to human as they are in, in tight and close relationship with their heavenly father, with their creator. And then in a moment, they turn their back on God when, they, uh, when God's reckless creation steps over a line from which, as far as the angels are concerned, there is no return. You know, Lucifer, now Satan, you know, he's been renamed. He's, he's lost his title. He's lost his position in heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 sort of accounts for this, you know, this pseudo battle that is going on between uh, one of the archangels and the creator himself. And we see how that turned out for the devil and his cohorts. And they're all observing as it seems like Human has really done the same thing. Now, depending on your theology or how you account for different things like dinosaurs that we have discovered lately, I think it might be my perspective that the great meteor, the asteroid that hit the earth, that, uh, that destroyed uh, you know, 150 million years of dinosaur reign on this planet, that asteroid would be named Satan. That, that was when God banished Satan to this planet. And the great disruption to all of God's original creation, original design of this world kind of came into a catastrophic place because rebellion, betrayal had hit the atmosphere and 
What did that look like? Well, that looked like complete and utter destruction, and Satan sat here, and his angels sat here for what would amount, if the scientists are right, and who knows if they are, they're probably guessing like you or I could, but let's go with their guess for example's sake. Satan and his fallen angels, they resided in this dimension for 65 million years. I mean, if the fossil record is correct, and you know, you well, can argue about that later. I mean, if anybody knew, there was no way back from rebellion. After 65 million years, I think the devil and his fallen angels knew this was a problem. God had created a problem that it would appear was too big for even God to solve. There was no way back from this kind of rebellion. And Genesis chapter 3, if you read the text of that, as you could imagine the, the serpent and his, and his army of fallen angels, as they are listening to God as he pronounces judgment upon this betraying creation. He says, you're now going to be blind. You're going to be banished. And you're going to be befuddled. And so God, because man had turned his back on God and walked off into the darkness, there was nothing really that God could do at that point. There was no avenue. There was, there was such a disruption that if God and his creation were ever to dwell in the same dimension together ever again, that would be simply a spark of epic proportions as all of creation vanishes in a puff of smoke. God knew there's no way I can get there. Satan knew that too. Satan knew that the, the disruption, the betrayal had created a problem that God himself would be unable to come here and solve that problem. It seemed God could only wait to see if someone in the middle of blindness and banishment and befuddlement, if somebody could find their way back, thinking to himself, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and again. But God waited and he waited and he waited and he waited and he waited. And in the meantime, Satan was hard at work, creating even more confusion, seeming lessening the chances day by day as man got loster and loster that he would ever find his way back. The problem that God had created was even bigger than it was when it started. You see, man had made a mistake that even God could not rescue them from. Sin had made it impossible for God to even engage. It looked like, in fact, God had created a problem that was so big that even he could not solve it. You know, I hearken back to my early years, as many of you remember, if you, have the if you honestly have the same hair color that I have. You'll remember people like Batman or Rifleman or the Maverick. How many of you remember those, those after-school programs? This was back when we only got to watch one a week. You know, it's changed. Now we can watch the entire series if we'll get enough coffee and stay up late enough. 
But back in those days, you would have these conundrums, and they would all find themselves, if you know the storyline of these stories, is not dissimilar to the same stories that we are hearing today, just with different names and different characters. You know, somewhere near the middle of the show, the hero himself has gotten himself into a conundrum. He has got himself into a problem, as we as small children, eyes wide and glued to the TV screen, have found that they are stuck in a problem that we cannot imagine how they are ever going to get out of that problem. They are in an impossible dilemma. Each one of us children, at least at the time, couldn't wait for next week to come when we could re-engage with the rifleman or the maverick and be able to find out how they were ever going to get out of it. What was going to be on Batman's bat belt that was going to get him out of this great conundrum that he found him? So we worried about our hero all week long unable to, con- to define in our own senses how, in, how ever he was going to get out of this problem. You know, I wonder to myself when the angels would observe man and God's relationship with man. We have this quote from them that says, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? I can see that in the, in the heart of the angels, they're wondering like, dude, this is a lost cause. It's over. There is no way back. Why don't you just forget about these people? Why don't you just let it go? This is over. We already know there's no way back for Satan. There's no way back for the angels. And now there's no way back for mankind. But it wouldn't be long before they learned that you are never so lost that God cannot find you. You are never in such a mess that God cannot unravel it. You are never outside God's ability to save you. You know, it never amazes me how God chooses to do that. You know, I would, if I was a God like God, if I could have you know, enter into every problem and every situation, guns a-blazing, you know, like lightning bolts coming out of the end of my fingers would seemingly solve every conundrum that anyone could ever find themselves in. Goodness sakes, God had arrived. But you know, and we look at how God does things. God does things in the strangest of ways. In all the Old Testament, everybody was wondering, all the onlookers were wondering, what is man that you are so mindful of them? You see, in Romans chapter 5, it says this in verse 8, while we were yet sinners, while we were blind and befuddled and banished, while we were lost in our own wanderings in the darkness, Christ died for us. There was a solution. It wasn't guns a-blazing. It wasn't lightning bolts coming out of his fingertips. God rescued us by dying for us. You see, the problem was, as many of you will recognize from the Old Testament, in order to pay a bill, you must not owe one yourself. And so when we were looking around and everybody looked around at that moment to find a sinless human being, you know, we were, we were plumb out of those. There was no solution. There was nobody here to pay the debt that we owed because everybody owed the debt. But God had found a way. God had found a way to rescue his humanity. What seemed like an impossible situation, what seemed like there was no solution, even to the angels who were on looking, as befuddled as the rest of us, there was, 
seemingly no way through this. In fact, God had an answer. He had had the answer from the very beginning. But can I tell you, God still had a problem. Man was not out of the woods. You see, God had set things up in a certain way that it required not that you didn't have a bill to pay or that somebody else had paid your bill. You see, Jesus had died on the cross and been resurrected. He ascended into heaven. Even John the Baptist's prophecy over Jesus in the first book of John was that he would make payment. He was the Lamb of God, slain for the sin, singular, the singular issue of sin for the whole world. You see, God had solved the problem. But you see, that's not how it worked. Yes, there was a solution. Yes, the bill was paid. But no, humans didn't believe that. And everything hinged on our ability to believe it. Everything, that's how God created the world. You know, if you are, understand anything about our, our eternity, you know, Jesus paid the price 2,000 years ago, but you didn't get saved if you, anyways, you didn't get saved until you chose to believe that. You see, that's how God set up eternity. God didn't set up the eternity as to having an accounting system up there. And when you get up there, you say, well, I've sinned. Yeah, but Jesus paid for my sins. It's not enough that Jesus paid for our sins. This was the next conundrum, the next um, crazy impossible situation that God had to contend with if in fact his objective was to save us. See, our eternal destination is not determined by whether our bills are paid or not. It hinges only on whether we have chosen to believe that or not. Can I tell you something else? That even in the here and now, God has designed creation itself to be synchronized, exactly, precisely synchronized not to what you wish, not to what you want, not to what you would desire, not to what you would think is great. It has been perfectly synchronized to align itself to what we believe. He created it that way in the very beginning. It gave an equal opportunity to every single human that was ever going to come along because each of us had been given the ability to believe something. All we had to do was choose what that something was that we believed. So all of our, our present here and now was going to be determined how well we lived, how much of the blessing of God reaches our, life, our lives, and, how, and whether it works or doesn't work, whether we're successful or, or not successful, whether we are above or beneath, all is determined. God designed it like that. It is all determined by what we have chosen to believe here on earth. And then in eternity, when we go from here, everything hinges not on what God has done, but what we have chosen to believe about it. See, creation is hardwired to what we believe. Every human being has the ability to choose that. And so how does God save us? How does he do that? How does he get us to believe how does he come to the place where even though the answer has been given to us that we have chosen to believe it? 
You see, if God can actually get us to believe something that's true, the mechanism of creation, all of the way the world works, is already set in motion. What we choose to believe, if we have in fact be- we believe that God is good and that he loves us, well, all of creation is already going to line itself up with that. That isn't a work that we have to accomplish. God doesn't even have to do anything. That's already been done. That's how creation was created. Faith, that thing we refer to as what we believe, already aligns me with truth and creation. And success, therefore, is inevitable. It is inevitable. There is no option to whether faith, what you believe, is going to appear in your life. It is an inevitable reality in advance. You know, you may look at my life, for example, or I may look at your life, and we may say, well, you believe something, but that's not operating in your life right now. Well, that only means that the game isn't over yet. Because success, victory in that game, if I have already chosen to believe it, success and victory in that game is inevitable. That's just hang around for a while. And then the, crea- the way God created everything is busy at work. The mechanism of that thing is busy at work, creating that thing, creating that reality in your life, in the here and now. It's simply the way God made creation. He aligned it that way so that mankind, aligned with God's truth, manifests the blessing in their lives. But what if our faith or what if our belief system isn't quite where it needs to be? You know, imagine in the simple story of Jesus going to the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, and how, how difficult that was going to be for humankind to realize that. That they were going to desire it, they're going to want to get close to God, but I don't know really how to do that. I've done so many things wrong, or I've just been so away from the right way to do things for so long. There's just no way that God, no, even a good God can't, There's just no way there's going to be a way back for me, not after what I have done. And see, God is is buffeted by those decisions that we have made. His, His actions are limited simply by our ability to believe something or not. Can I tell you something? There's this magical way that God does that. And it's written right there in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And it says, for while we were yet sinners... You know, a good way to retranslate that or, or relook at that would be to say, while we yet did not believe, Christ died for us. What's the imagery here? He says that we don't have to believe first for God to be able to get to us. God gets to us first. That we're able to get, no matter what your situation you may be facing, that you say, no, I, just, I just can't believe that, that God's going to get me out of this. I just can't see a solution. I don't have a bat belt. There is no way out of this. Can I tell you something? All we need to lay hold of is the fact that before we even deserve, when we were the farthest that we have ever been from God, God found a way. He got to us even when we didn't realize he was trying to get to us. We didn't even realize God cared about us. And God was building a plan to not only care about us, but to love us in the most extreme way possible. Why was God doing that? So that we would just lay down and wait for the next blessing to roll over us? No. He showed us that grace because he was trying to get us to believe something. 
Can I tell you something? There is a silver bullet. There is a belief system that gets us through every situation. Can I tell you what that is? It goes like this. It says, Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the reason God came and got us when we weren't even gettable was because he loved us. God finds a way to find us even when we are the most lost we have ever been. When I can put my confidence not in my ability to believe, although that comes. Not in my ability to get it all perfectly right, although that you get closer and closer and closer. When we can put our confidence in while I was still a sinner, when I still didn't believe, when I still didn't have a clue, when I still didn't get it right, when I was still as lost as I have ever been, God found a way. Can I tell you, God is mighty to save. There is no problem so big that God cannot solve it. There is no lost that God cannot find you. We're in that place where we're able to mix and blend the two of those beautiful principles together, faith and truth, mixed with grace and mercy. When we are able to not be divided by those things, you know, the faith Christians and the truth Christians at war with the mercy and grace Christians. No, that's not the way God intended us. Can I tell you something? You need both. I don't care how great your faith is. I don't care whether you can quote the scriptures from Revelations backwards. You're always going to find a way. The devil will always find a way to sneak in something at the last minute that's ready to put a hole in your flotation device. No matter what, I've tried this over and over and over again. And can I tell you something? Man, you can start out this journey. Man, I got this. Beloved, I am with you always. And all that I have is yours. Man, that covers everything from stem to stern. But can I tell you something? Right, right before the sun's about to crack over the horizon, the devil is right there finding some way, finding something that would render you unqualified. That would, re- that would be trying desperately to render your faith powerless in that moment. Can I tell you something? The one that covers it all is while we were yet sinners, God found a way without any help from us at all. God found a way You know what, you can be fighting your fight in your finances, for example, and right before you get to the end of the finish line, your health is challenged. All of a sudden, you've got your health in order, and all of a sudden, there's a relationship that's gone crazy. And then when you get the relationship fixed, all of a sudden, there's this inner turmoil that's going on, and I don't know what's wrong, honey, I just don't feel good. And when you get that solved, you know, sure enough, there's another financial problem knocking at your door. And I tell you something, as we wander, you can get all those scriptures and you could be, you could have them pasted all over your house. But you know what? Tell you what? The devil will find a way to be able to give you that good sucker punch right in the gut. Unless you understand that while we were the most lost, God still had a way. 
Nothing can defeat a Christian that stands right in the face of their problem, confident, heels dug into the ground saying, this is going to turn out for my victory. How do I know that? I know that not because I've been so lazy that I have no faith, but neither that I have been so prideful that I count only upon my faith. I'm able to be that person that says, you know what, God, I'll get it as right as I can, but you know, in the end of the day, there may be something I still don't believe as much as I may need to believe it. You know, I look at this, I have this wonderful opportunity right now to be raising these beautiful grandchildren, you know, being grandpa to these beautiful grandchildren. They do go home at night, thank God for that. <laughs> but you know, you're watching them. We have this little rock, you know, a little playground, little thingamajiggy in our backyard. And you know, as, you're, as I'm watching the little ones, the Hudson, I was playing with him the other day, and he was climbing up that little rock wall. You know, I don't just put him on the next shelf, which is what many of us would like to do. We'd, that's not how this works. God, you just don't want God to keep putting you into position. What the fun of the rock wall is that Hudson gets to do it himself. And he wants to do it himself. The only thing is, is that Bubba does need to be there for that one moment. You know, we're encouraging him, you know, use your muscles. You know, take another step, climb, hold on. And Bubba's right there just in case, don't worry, that's okay. So that's the picture of how God does it. That's how, that's how God's relationship with us is, is. He desires so desperately that we would step up and give the very best that we can in that moment. And if it happens to be, as it most often is, that our muscles aren't quite enough to get us to the top of the rock wall. God is always there. Bubba's always there. He always makes it to the top shelf. He's always ready to jump on the slide. You know why? Because the little bit that he was lacking didn't really matter. Because he knew. Bubba was there. We know. We know that God is there. Or maybe you need wisdom, you know, like I have this other granddaughter, Lola. Lola is a, a whole lot of woman right there in that little package. Lola was at my house the other day and she was jumping from the, from, the, from the couch onto the ottoman. And so I said, Lola, here's the deal. You have to jump from the ottoman onto the couch because if you do it the other way around, I can just see what Lola's gonna do. Lola's gonna jump from the couch onto the ottoman, bounce off the ottoman and hit the television. And so just a little bit of wisdom from Bubba, that's all she needed was just a, a little bit of guidance, just a little bit of correction. And all of a sudden the game of jumping from the ottoman to the couch was at least now survivable for Bubba. That's just, it was just too crazy before. But it was just a little bit of wisdom. That's all like, I didn't jump for her. I didn't land for her. I didn't figure out anything else for her other than to say, Lola, we're gonna, we're gonna go this way from now on. It was just a little tiny correction, but how many of you know doing a front flip off the ottoman could be, you know, problematic. Their parents were gonna be home soon and that was gonna be a problem. Can I tell you something? When God is with us, we are always safe. It's always going to turn out for us. One of the most amazing prayers that I have learned in my life I think this prayer has solved for me more problems than any other prayer. Can I teach you that prayer? It's a very hard prayer, so you're going to need to write this down. I say, Holy Spirit is everything 
going to be okay. It's in that moment where the Holy Spirit knows whether I have the faith or I don't, whether I can or I can't. It doesn't really matter. Can I tell you something? The answer always, always, the always answer is yes, Ian. Everything is going to be. Well, I don't know if I have enough strength to do this, Ian. Everything. I don't know if I have enough money to get this, you know, Ian, everything. I don't know if I have enough help, you know, Ian, everything is going to be okay. Because God is always there. It's like Bubba, God is always there to make up the difference. He's promised us in <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13, he says, I will never, never, I will never leave you. Well, what if I'm being stupid today? I will never leave you. What if I, this is my own mistake, God. I knew better than to do this. I will never leave you. While we were yet sinners, we had chosen the wrong path. God, Jesus died for a how greater a sacrifice could God have given to prove to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, it's very interesting at the end of the, the book of Deuteronomy, if you've, uh, you know, it's a bit challenging to get all the way to Deuteronomy, and there's a couple, you know, a couple of rough roads, you know, between Genesis and Deuteronomy, but if you have been able to find yourself there, we are really talking about the chronology of, of Moses as he has left the Egypt, he is now traveling through the wilderness, and he's coming very close to the end of his life, and the end of their season in the wilderness, and he's giving instructions. That's really the end of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' instructions to the Israelite nation when they go into the promised land. And particularly when Moses, it starts in Deuteronomy chapter 26, and, and Moses is instructing the people of Israel, and he says it like this, when you go in to the land that God has promised you, that land that flows with milk, and honey. You know, Liz wrote a song years ago now. It says, one word from God. It just takes one word from God to change everything. If you look in this scripture, that word is when. It's not if. Moses is looking into the future. He, he sent the spies in. They know there's giants in the land. They know these are fortified cities. He knows that he's got a ragtag a group of you know, sand dwellers going up against seasoned warriors though, like the world has never seen before. This was the prized possession of land in all the earth as they knew it at the time. The very best of the best lived here. And what did Moses say? He said, when you have gone in, when you have possessed, when you have had the victory and the promised land is yours. You know, it's only a couple verses more. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, many of you remember that. Oh, let's, let me think now, what's judgment? That's when the blessings of God are being laid out to us. You know, that scripture starts with a very different word from God. Can we go there for a moment? I'll just flip there myself. 
And he says, and it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God. You know, one word from God can save you. The one word in this scripture is if. You see, Moses knew for sure that they were going to possess the promised land. What he didn't know was if they would hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord. That was going to be up to the individual Israelites. That, was, that, would, that decision was going to be theirs. You know, God was going to deliver them. God was going to do the heavy lifting and get them through these battles where they were outnumbered and outgunned and outfortified and outtrained and outwarriored. God was going to give them victory after victory after victory after victory after victory. And the question was simply this. The concern that Moses had right before he drew his final breath was would you hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord? Would you hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord? You see, he's hearkening backwards. You know, he's saying... Would you listen to the things that I have already explained to you? And I'm really quite convinced that he's talking very specifically about this season starting at the very beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. When, I mean, the, the 20, chapter 26, when Moses begins to talk about this exact time that they were going to find themselves in when they arrived at the victory circle, when they found themselves on the top podium, when they had won all the battles, when they had, they, had, they had won all the spoils, that everything God had promised them was already accomplished. And he began, Moses began to talk to them about what needs to happen now. He was thinking that because it's very easy in the time of blessing to get caught up in the blessing. It's easy to forget the blesser in a time of blessing. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, you know, God really asks one thing after we get blessed. And it goes like this, that you will not forget that it was God who brought the blessing. Can I tell you something? The best way to perpetuate the blessing in our lives, this is tweetable, the best way to perpetuate the blessing in our lives is when our children see us give the credit to God. It's when our children see us give the credit to God. You know, we're often distracted, as Moses was concerned about the Israelites themselves. We are often distracted when the victory arrives. We easily credit our education, our job, our credit score, our IQ, our EQ, the economy, our talents, our good looks, as being the reason why we won the victory. Can I tell you something? These are all shifting sand. 
The instruction that Moses had given to the Israelites was in the area of our first fruits, bringing a first fruit offering before the Lord. That way of connecting our treasure to our heart, our desire to give God the credit for what has been accomplished in our lives. You know, we've lost our way when it comes to the understanding of first fruits because we lump them in with the tithe, that weekly 10% that we give God because he's our partner, because he's actually the smart part of our partnership. But can I tell you something? First fruits, that ability to give that first portion to God celebrates the fact that he, God, is the source of our blessing. It isn't because we live in a great economy, although that's beautiful that we do. It's not because you're smart, or maybe it is because you're smart, but guess why you're smart? What was the belief system that empowered you to go get an education? What was the belief system that inspired you to work on your talents? Can I tell you something? It is the belief system that God placed on the inside of you that inspires us to do everything that then produces the blessing in our lives. Can I tell you something? First fruits inspire us to look behind all of these things that like the Israelites, Moses knew they're going to become distracted by their own successes. You know, the Israelites, and, and rightly so, the Israelites had gone through 24 chapters of battles before they possessed all of the promised land. It would have been easy for them to credit their own battles, their own victories, to take credit for those things. They had, wa- they had uh, they were hard-won battles. It would have been easy for them to celebrate the warriors or the generals or maybe to deify Joshua himself. But if they would have done that, and this was Moses' concern, they would have missed the very point. They would not have been teaching their children how to perpetuate this blessing in their lives because Moses and the generals and the warriors were all going to pass away. They were all shifting sand. But instead of that, he taught them how to put the the credit, give the credit, put my heart and connect my heart directly with the source of my blessing by bringing my first fruits to God have a national celebration, bring that first portion to the one who deserves credit for the victory. You know, we do a lot of work here at at Light City with dealing with that inner part of our existence as a human being. And, you know, why do we believe the things that we believe? And how did those belief systems get in there? And how do we change the belief system once we are working along with that person who desires to do so? Can I tell you something? There are two most amazing moments when there appears to be a direct relationship between what is going on in your natural life and what gets programmed into your heart. Can I tell you those two times? One of them is in times of, tra- of trauma, and the other is in times of triumph. That when we are experiencing these amazing, emotionally complex and extreme moments of victory and defeat, that when we put our attention onto God in that time of victory, in that time of triumph, what we're doing is we are driving and reinforcing, we are setting in concrete 
that belief system that God is always with me, that he has a way, that he'll never leave me nor forsake me, that he has a victory for me, he has success for me, even though I haven't got a clue how we are going to get there. You see, God is willing to stand behind his word and see that it comes to pass in our lives. But God is also willing to, be, to mercifully rescue us even when we are the farthest from him, as we are pressing towards him and desiring to know the truth. You know, God rescues us from that situation and right in the middle of that shows us how to be victorious ourselves over that thing next time it comes. This is what we are celebrating as we are bringing our first fruits to God, that he is the source of our success and not the shifting sands of this world. But our success is built upon the rock of God's truth and grace. And when I believe the truth, God's creation is already set in motion and my success is inevitable. But when I don't yet believe the truth, God is working behind the scenes to do whatever it takes to save me in spite of that. Either way, God is my source. You see, first fruits is a celebration that because of who God is and what he has done, nothing is impossible for me. There is no mountain big enough that God is not bigger still. There is no corona, there's no civil division, there's no crashed economy. Whatever you would be facing today, can I promise you something? God is bigger still. We're celebrating the fact that my future is firmly in my control. This world is synchronized to what I have chosen to believe. And if I'm heading off the rails, all that needs to happen is I cry out for the grace of God and I rely on the truth of God and it rescues me. And whatever then final third part of that first fruit is whatever path God has for me, I know that the grace and truth is there for me to be successful on that journey. I cannot make a mistake that is so big that God cannot rescue me still. Can I tell you something? The deck is stacked in our favor. The question is, will we remember that at the end of the game? I was watching a documentary the other day. I've spoken so much about this. made such an impression upon me. In the middle of this documentary, they had done a research project with a, a whole bunch of, I think, college students or whatever that they were involved in that process. And the way the game worked was that they were going to play, two people were going to play the game of Monopoly, one against each other. But before the game started, they were going to flip a coin. And the winner of that coin flip was going to get twice as much money. And they were going to be able to use two dice while the other person used only one. Now they both played the game. If you're familiar with Monopoly at all, you know the advantages that those things created, that, that the, the person who had won the coin toss was able to buy more things along the way than the other person, and the person with two rolls of the dice were, go, was, were going to pass go more often and collect even more money as they went by. And so it's not a surprise to any of us that have been challenged by that game to know that the people that won in the end of the day were the people who were determined to win at the beginning of the game. 
The funny part of this and the most challenging part for me as I was watching this and preparing for this series of teaching was that every one of those winners was canvassed after the end of the game. They were asked a whole series of questions and then one of the questions that they were all asked was to give account or give credit to what they believed had been the key force that caused them to win that Monopoly game. And to our own shame as human beings, he said, not one of them credited the fact that they won the coin toss at the beginning of the game. Each of them had become distracted by one of the shifting sands. Maybe they were good at rolling the dice. Maybe they were good at buying property. Maybe they managed their money well. Maybe they raced around and got the $200 faster than anybody else. And they all took credit themselves. Can I tell you something? Moses knew that this factor, this force was alive inside of every single human being. Every person in the midst of the blessing was going to be the agent that would destroy the blessing ever being able to happen again unless one tiny thing happened. And that was that we remember in the season of triumph, in the season of blessing, like each one of us do, living in the land that flows with milk and honey, even in the worst economic situation any of us have seen since before the war, Everybody here is doing great. Everybody is in a place of triumphing, that our faith is out there. Our faith is strong. Can I tell you something? What perpetuates this into the next battle and the next battle and the next battle for generations to come is that we embrace this huge principle that Moses is delivering to the Israelite nation, and that is that when you come into the land that flows with milk and honey, bring your first fruits to God. You know, he created it that way, and let's just celebrate him for it.